0: People are strange when you're a stranger, faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down, when you're strange, faces come out of the rain when you're strange. No one Welcome back busy. to the American Writers one hundred pages at a time podcast. In this episode, I will be starting a new series on the novels of Charles Brockton Brown. I'll be looking at three novels, starting with Wieland, followed by Arthur Mer- Mervyn, and then Edgar Huntley. Um, these are three of a handful of novels that Charles Brockton Brown wrote before his uh, unfortunate early death. Um, Charles Brockton Brown is often seen as America's first a commercial novelist I, I don't think he's the first American to to write a novel but he's the first to really kind of make it a profession of of his so it was kind of notable for for that now Wieland uh, was the first major work by Charles Brockton Brown it was published in 1798 so it's still in the 18th century and the American Revolution and the Transformations of the American Revolution, I think, are kind of in the backdrop of this novel. The the novel itself is set sometime after the French and Indian War, but before the American Revolution. So that's where that's where the narrative's set. But you can feel the influence of of a world that's that's coming to terms with a great transformation. And in fact that's the subtitle of the book, Wheeland or the Transformation in American Tale. That's the full title of it. And this transformation can be taken many different ways. There's characters that transform the narrator, uh, a, a woman named Clara, Clara Wheeland. Um, but that's not the titular Wheeland. That that her brother is the the titular Wheeland. You know, she has transformations. Her narrative's not very reliable at times. Now, she's telling it some. It's been it's an embedded narrative. She's telling a story some years later, and there's a lot of doubt we can place on it, and. Um, what else to say about this? It's, it's a gothic novel. It's, it's one of the first American gothic novels. Um, and like the gothic tradition in general, it deals with themes of, of degeneration and, and kind of as families decline or places decline. Decay is, is a major theme in Charles Brockton Brown's work. But he puts them in an American context. You also have this focus on the kind of genealogy and some of the settings, these kind of pastoral settings. Um, they are, they are Americanized. I think that's part of the interest in this. But I think this novel is also of interest to to readers who are interested in the supernatural and or just kind of weird fiction. It, it almost fits into weird fiction. I think um, it's it's well before that genre had an identity and it, before it had a magazine, of course. But uh, there's a lot in here that's you know explained. A lot of weird events that are explained, but some weird events aren't fully explained and. There's psychological horror in the novel, and there's the, the horrible death is explored, and there's a lot of the themes we get in supernatural fiction, speculative fiction, especially like horror fiction, that, that we see here. In, in many ways, it is kind of a horror novel. So it's uh, that's Whelan. It It's kind of an amazing novel for a nation to, to have as its debut. Um, another thing we can say about this novel is it's, it's kind of sexual politics are are fairly radical i think uh we have themes of adultery of of, we have love triangles of sorts being played with here we have unfulfilled attraction um in it we have uh, violence towards women being explored Uh, even incest is hinted at a few times in the novel so it's it's pushing the boundaries of, of pushing the limits of what could be kind of acceptable in the terms of the sexual politics of, of the novel. So that's that's some of my, my introductory thoughts on this. I love this novel. I, I've read it several times. I always get more things out of it every time I read it. I, I just love the weirdness of it. I I like the way it's written. I, I like the narration of it. I think it's uh, it's it's a really good psychological novel. That's what I like about it. We, we see a character coming to terms with events early in her life and still not fully recovered from them obviously and trying to work through them and you you actually see her opinion like like years later she's still in deep anguish over these events that happened to her and they are horrific things the things that happened to her in this novel and to her family are, are quite horrible but she she gets through them she recovers but they're still traumatic for her and you know the the Charles Brockton Brown goes through a lot of pains to make us feel this, this anguish of this character, Clara Whelan, uh, in, the, in the construction of the novel. So in this episode, I'm going to look at the first half of the novel, which will be roughly the first 12 chapters. And then in the next episode, I'll finish up and do the second half. The first half of the novel really introduces us to our main characters. Um, and we learn their genealogy. important in Gothic novels is to get that uh, genealogy down and, and established. And we, we see this family kind of doing well. They're well off. They have land. And, you know, even though their father dies, they're able to make it in the, in the Americas. It's a fairly successful farming family. They start to think about the future of their life. The elder, Clara's brother, Whelan, marries, has kids. Clara's beginning to think about marriage. And then this strange character enters into the story. Well, first, some weird things happen to them. They start to hear voices, um, and characters start to act strange. And some characters had always acted strange in in certain ways, but they start to act stranger, and they start to hear voices, and we get reporting on voices. And they first try to explain this rationally, and then a character enters into the story a, a strange drifter man named Carwin, who himself has undergone a transformation, even in his identity. I mean, he has all this weird backstory back in Europe, which is not reliably narrated either. And once this character enters into the story, stranger things happen. And the climax of the first half of the novel is, is a, a sens- what seems to be an attempted rape of, of Clara by, by Carwin, and then we see the aftermath of that for, for our characters. So a lot happens in the first half of the novel, a lot for us to talk about. Um, and as always, I think the best way to go through it is just to start at the beginning and see what's, what's key and what's significant in... In each chapter, and you know, as we go through, I'm just going to talk about the things that I that struck me when I read it. It's a really kind of thick novel because it's doing with all the psychology of the character, and we spend a lot of time in Clara Whelan's mind, and we see the kind of the chaos, the the anguish, the, the 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 stormy nature of her of her of her emotions, and they get worse and worse and more jumbled as the as the story goes on. The whole thing though starts innocently enough. We we learn that it's an embedded narrative we we're it's, it's essentially a letter that Clara is writing to a friend to explain these things that happened to her family and she feels she's had enough separation from them that she's able to begin to speak on these issues however we're told right away that this is a horror she says she writes we don't actually know it's a woman yet till a little bit later but in the you know we it's, it's a woman she says, My state is not destitute of tranquility. The sentiment that dictates my feeling is not hope. Futurity has no power over my thoughts. To all that it is to come, I am perfectly indifferent. With regard to myself, I have nothing more to fear. Fate has done its worth. Henceforth, I am called malice to misfortune. I address no supplication to the deity. The powers of that governs the course of human affairs has chosen my path. And she goes on like this for like half a page. Just talking about how... This is all the events of fate. Everything that happened to her it was outside of her control and driven by some sort of fate. And the only really comfort she can get is to know that the past can't be changed. There's nothing, she has to have a little serenity about the fact that there's not much she can do about it. But she's obviously still traumatized. So we're, we're told, essentially, that this is a, a horror novel. Or at least the things that happened to her are perceived to be horrific by her, by the narrator. So she starts by going back to her briefly to her grandparents but she focuses the early part of the novel the first ch- couple of chapters on her father and her father's the one who settles in in America and we start with him back in England it is and he starts to get involved in old texts and it's almost like a Lovecraftian device here you know if if you didn't know that this was written in the 18th century you would think he was being influenced by Lovecraft here because you actually have the scene where the curious odd uh, maybe somewhat religious young man starts to explore ancient texts that maybe are a little bit forbidden. In this case, it's the, the Albigensians, the, the French Protestants. Um, and they had these like books that were kind of hidden and kept underground. And He starts to read these and he undergoes a religious conversion. And um, there's a couple of times when like lost knowledge and ancient texts Emerge in the story, and it and it affects several characters, and it makes me think of Lovecraft, because that's such a strong theme in Lovecraft's um, writing. And and as with Lovecraft, I think with Charles Brockton Brown here, we were the suggestion is that this these books are best left closed, they're best left hidden. You know, you don't want to dig too much into this this past, and and perhaps the madness in the family that enters into this family has its roots in this original. transgressive act of of looking into the books that that you shouldn't have. And these books are even somewhat seductive to the reader. As soon as he finished his work, he took up the book and turned to the first page. The further he read, the more inducement he found to continue. And he regretted the decline of the light, which obliged him for the present to close it. Well, the effect of this on Clara's father is that he gets the desire to be a missionary and he thinks the best place to go to be a missionary is the americas because it's in the americas that that he can reach out to the native people and 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 help solidify christianity in this new land Um, but he goes there and and he doesn't you know he really becomes more of a farmer and sets up uh, a farm for himself and, and Clara's mother is not really part of the story. She, she's here obviously, and she has these children. But we don't hear much about her, but she's kind of dragged along with this. I think she's presented as essentially a, a quiet religious person like like her father. Now interestingly, he, he makes a kind of a temple in nature. and this is a really an interesting Americanism. We, we've seen this before in this podcast of this of, of efforts of writers to try to put divinity in nature. We saw it in Steinbeck, um, the, the novel where the farmer has this relationship with the land and ends up killing himself in, in kind of a shrine. right? We think of that or um, even Norris has a bit of this idea of like the rural mystic has a t- who has a connection to nature. Right here Clara's father sets up a, a temple in nature. It, it, he finds a place and he starts to call it a temple and it will be continued to be called a temple in the next generation. This is something gets passed on. Quote, it was no more than a circular area 12 feet in diameter whose flooring was a rock cleared of moss and shrubs and exactly leveled, edged by 12 Tuscan columns and covered by an undulating dome. My father furnished the dimensions and outlines but allowed the artist whom he employed to complete the structure in its own plan. It was without a seat, table, or ornament of any kind. So it's it's kind of an outdoor temple. There is some construction here, obviously, um, from, from the description here, but it's kind of out. in in the wild and this is quote this is the deity to the temple to his deity twice in 24 hours he repaired hither unaccompanied by any human being so he's spending a lot of time alone in this temple and that's always the sign of kind of an oddity in in a character of course now apparently he's talking to God or talking to supernatural while he's in this temple because he seems to get message and instructions and and the future gets told to him. He, he's told he's like doesn't have long left for the world and that turns out to be true. He, again, you know, I don't know how much we should take this seriously. I mean, how much of this is, does, can Clara really know? I mean, there's there's scenes in this this novel that that Clara really couldn't have had access to, but she she reports on them anyways. Um, but, you know, this is kind of one of them. But it does seem that her father was getting stranger and stranger after he came to America and, and built, this, built this temple. So all of that happens in the, in the first chapter. And in the second chapter, we get uh, a continuation of this event. And we find out what eventually happens to her father. And it's, boy, is it bizarre. Um, he begins to really behave strangely. And then he starts to get sick one day and he starts to feel hot and bothered and, you know, the, the wife tries to care for him and have him rest. But then, then one day he, he literally spontaneously combusts and, you know, just becomes ash. I mean, it's, it's weird. I don't know if there's been previous examples of spontaneous combustion in literature, but this has to be one of the, the first. And this is the first event in the novel where we get a debate then following the event of, of whether this is supernatural or scientific. And it's going to happen a lot in the story. When weird things happen, the narrator then sits back and tries to, under, you know, tries to understand it rationally, or the characters try to understand it rationally, even if the narrator might believe the most extreme supernatural explanations for, for that. Um, of course, you could just take her literally. She's saying it's fate, so this could just be kind of the random chance. I mean, that's how I read fate. Maybe, maybe you guys read fate a little bit differently. You know, sometimes when people talk about fate, they see it as, um, you know, like there's a specific destiny for people, right? I see it more as just like there's so much that happens to us that is outside of our control. So there's, you know, what happens to us is not always our fault or not always our, a product of our conscious action. And because there's so many kind of moving pieces in the world and fate is kind of the aggregate of all that random chance and events outside of our control that affect us it doesn't mean we're leading someplace it just means we're not really in control of our of our destiny but anyways i might come back to the spontaneous combustion thing especially the, the debate on it but there's a scene here where there's this clock so clara's father has this clock and this is still in the early days of clock and before most people have been acculturated to clock time the way we have been in the industrial world and even the clock has this kind of eerie, ominous nature to it. And It comes back several times in the stories. Quote Contrary to custom, the lamp, instead of being placed on the hearth, was left upon the table. Over, over it against the wall there hung a small clock, so contrived to strike a very hard stroke at the end of the every sixth hour. That was now which was approaching, was the signal for retiring to the fane at which he addressed his devotions. Long habit had occasioned him to always be awake at this hour, and the toll was instantly obeyed. Quote. You know, the, the fact that the clock has to be obeyed, that's what struck me about the, that. And, of course, that's the essence of, of the world of the clock time, you know, the world where we're all bound to clock time. As for the debate of, about what caused the spontaneous combustion, of course, his death was investigated, and there were different scientific explanations for what could have um, caused it. Now, Clara is the kind of person who's going to, to side f- towards the supernatural or fate as an explanation of, of what happened, not really trusting uh, just um, but, uh, like the scientific explanations. Quote, Was this the penalty of disobedience? This the stroke of vindictive and invisible hands? Is it a fresh proof that the divine ruler interferes in human affairs, meditates, and end, selects and commissions his agents and enforces by unequivocal sanctions, submission to his will? Or was it merely the irregular expansion of the fluids that impart warmth to our heart and our blood caused by the fatigue of the preceding days or flowing by established laws from the condition of his thoughts?" End quote. And then we actually have a footnote. I don't know if that's Brown, I think, or it's supposed to be Clara who puts this footnote in. But it's actually a footnote to other cases of spontaneous combustion that, that happened. And you could follow this footnote in some French medical journal and maybe, maybe see these actual cases that, that took place. So we already know, we're two, two chapters in, less than 20 pages in, and we already know that we're in a story where strange things are going to happen. We're, we're in a story, we're in the Gothic, where, where in the Gothic literature people experience strange, violent, odd, horrific deaths. And we have, you know, and in Gothic literature as well, there's this concern about family and legacy and and heritage and especially the decline of a family now as we recover from these initial opening scenes things calm down and things relax and and we get to see the Wielands make do as orphans in the new world because they have money and they can they can do it that way because they're you know because they're not struggling to make ends meet they're not in workhouses or something or they're not in the dole or apprenticed off or whatever the the things that happen to poor uh, orphan americans at the time so they do fine and, and we get this relaxation from the oddity that's going on and we, we think for a while maybe we're actually maybe that was just set up we're actually entering a more mainstream novel like a romance tale or a, a family drama in fact things seem to get better right you know the, the weird one of the family is gone right so now we have stable people you know the younger wieland let will just call him wieland throughout his name is theodore it's clara's brother you know it seems the family seems to be improving that there's not any clear evidence that this madness of whatever weird behavior from their father wasn't it wasn't passed down to them so anyways chapter three um they're clara and her brother are orphaned not long after the death of of their father their mother dies and she's just knocked off of the of the story she's not really that important to the tale and they begin to form a new family so that family is, is Theodore Wieland and then Catherine Playel is who she, who he marries. And they have four kids together. And that's all just rushed over very quickly. And then, so you got this kind of new family. And then there's Plyell, who is Catherine's brother. And she, he's got a, a honey back in Europe, but she's, he's part of the circle as well. And they hang out together. They're, they're, they're a leisure class family so they can spend a lot of time together now eventually Plyel's is going to be a romantic interest for for clara we even get theodore whelan embracing sagrarian mythology this kind of american dream of owning land you know he, he decides to go into agriculture and you know bring science and modernity and, and the enlightenment to the pursuit of agriculture but he's still kind of of that yeoman class that's how he sort of sees himself He's still religious, though, and and over time, we're going to learn he, he does have that kind of religious oddities that her, his, her father has. Now, Clara has a, she has a whole page, and I, I, I won't read the whole thing, but the whole page, it's page 21 in the Library of America version, where she starts out saying how liberal and hands-off their religious education was. you know, and I guess I had to do with the nature of her father. She quote, "Our devotion was a mixed and casual sentiment, seldom verbally expressed, or solicitously sought, or carefully retained. In the midst of present enjoyment, no thought was bestowed on the future. As a consolation in calamity, religion is dear, but calamity was yet at a distance. But then she says, like this, my brother's a different case. He's, he's an archet, and he had this philosophy." Quote, human life, in his opinion, was made up of changeable elements, and the principles of duty were not easily unfolded. The future, either as interior or subsequent to death, was a scene that required some preparation and preservation to to the maker for it. These positions we could not deny, but what distinguished them was a propensity to ruminate on this truth. And then she talks about how kind of solemn he is. And he seems to have this religious idea, but it's based in the necessity of change and, and I guess redemption right so transformation that's in the title of the book right the transformation and that's something that Theodore seems to believe and she bul- bounces back and forth seeing her father in Wieland in certain ways but not in others like he doesn't embrace uh, he doesn't use the temple the same way right the temple kind of is left fallow and he's also interested in ancient knowledge and old texts, but it's like Cicero instead of Protestant texts and, and kind of suppressed Protestant traditions. But he's clearly in the religious uh, frame of mind, and we learn that really through the contrast with Pleyel. Pleyel the Catherine's brother, is purely of the Enlightenment, and we're, we're told that in no uncertain terms by the narrator. Pleyel was a champion of intellectual liberty. He rejected all guidance but that of reason, his reason. Their discussions were frequent, but being managed with candor as well as skill, they were always listened to by us with avidity and benefit. Pleyel, like his new friends, was fond of music and poetry. Henceforth, our concerts consisted of two violins, a harpsichord, and three voices. And then we get more of a feel about what their life is like on this farm. That it's just, they, they have this land, it makes its money. I guess they have their servants. We don't really see too many of them. And they're rich, or at least they have enough wealth to live comfortably, and they have a lot of time to, to, to play music, to talk philosophy, to engage in different kinds of, um, you know, the pleasures of life, the intellectual pleasures of life. If Wieland does have the germ of his father's badness, it's not clear to the reader at this point. Although Clara does sow some seeds that there's a little bit of her father in her brother. So that's in all chapter three. This is really a chapter that sets up the the new setting after her father's death, shows what happened to them, and then really tries to explore the character of of Wieland. So chapter four zips ahead forward a little bit, six years. So it's in those six years that he marries and has the kids. So um, he finally marries Catherine. The French and Indian War takes place during these, these periods, so it's, it's a period of disruption and disorder in, in America, at the time War on the Frontiers. It doesn't seem to affect them too much, but it, it's sort of in the backdrop of it. But, you know, odd, an odd character is going to show up, right? And Carwin... And that's something that happens in a war, right? During in wartime, borders get disrupted, people move around, soldiers go here and there, and, you know, weird people are more likely to show up in a time of war, it seems to me. And I think if we want to look at this kind of in a macro way, uh, you know, the story of, of Wieland is a story of a good life disrupted by a mystery and then tragedy. And, you know, that's kind of what's going on, you know, in the... In the we've got the American Revolution, here, too, that kind of takes a world that was stable and understood and disrupts it and transforms it into something else. And I think that's something a lot of early American authors, that, that first generation of, of authors, had to, had to struggle with, right? You know, some were more radical and more overtly revolutionary, you know, like, go America patriots, you know, like people that wanted to really break free of Ameri- of British culture. But a lot of others are just kind of struggling with what it means to, you know, in this, in this new world. And I think Broxton Brown, Charles Broxton Brown is kind of in that genealogy. You don't have a lot of overt kind of patriotism and, and jingoism about American history. It's just it's in the backdrop of everything. And it's just this kind of disruption to life, the transformation. Right. And then maybe that that it could be a whole metaphor for the transformation of America. I'm not sure. So we get in mystery in chapter four and we had a previous mystery that the death of her of Clara's father. And in Chapter 4, we get a new mystery, but it's not really directly related to them. We, they get the story, a side story of this guy named Major... What's his name? Major... Sorry, Major Stewart. I can't even read my own handwriting sometimes. I had to look it up. Um, so he's... He sees a woman, Lewis Conway. At some point, he tells a story about how he sees this woman. And... Louisa Conway, and this is his daughter, right? And then we get his backstory that that previously his wife left him. Yeah, so Stuart, and then he tells this back. He shares his backstory after he he meets this this daughter, and and so he he married this like young rich girl back in London. They they had they had a good marriage, but suddenly like she just left after she had a kid i think he went off to fight a war or something and then she just abandoned him and so we get a, a mystery of kind of why she abandoned him and that's and it's all it's all triggered by the fact that he sees this girl who turns out to be his daughter and it, it's a side story but it it's just as a reminder that strange things happen and people's lives get disrupted and and, they, and it's not always explained in in a satisfactory way which is and this i don't think is ever explained either what happened to Mrs. Stewart and why she abandoned Major Stewart. Um, but, I mean, and that's that's kind of a bit of the, maybe the lesson of this story is that there's not always answers to the, these mysteries. These weird things will happen from time to time. So they, at one point, Whelan goes to the temple to to retrieve a letter that he had from this major steward. And, and it's actually, this is the context in which we get this backstory about steward. They had met him a little bit earlier. And so Whelan goes to get this letter that had been left in the temple, and he comes back horribly shaken. He comes back fearful and terrified. And he has heard Catherine's voice, the voice of his wife. And he, he tells the story of what happened to him to Pleyel and, and, and Clara. But here's, what, here's the voice he hears. He hears. Stop, go no further. There is danger in your path. And then William asks, Who calls? Is that you, Catherine? And the response is, Yes, it is I. Go not up. Return instantly. You are wanted at the house. End quote. And he's convinced this is the voice of Catherine. So it doesn't take Brown to go back to the weird uh, in chapter 4. So we just got like a one chapter r- relief from this. But we're back to the weird. You know Where did this voice come from? What is its relationship with the temple? Uh, I mean, if there's good reason at this point to think that maybe there is something going on in that that location, and whatever drove their father mad is going to drive Wheeling man now, right? Because it, maybe maybe there is some kind of supernatural connection. Maybe it's a temple, really a temple to God, and people can hear God's voice, you know. But it's not Catherine. That's pretty much clear. So there has to be an explanation for this voice that doesn't. Rely on like trickery or because, you know, Catherine is obviously not the source of it. And for a while, Clara is being the scientist here. She says, there is to be no determinate way in which the subject can be viewed. Here is an effect, but the cause is utterly inscrutable. To suppose a deception would not do. Such is possible but there are 20 other suppositions more probable. They must all be set aside before we reach that point. What are those 20 suppositions? It's needless to mention them. They are only less improbable than Plyell's. Time may convert one of them into certainty. Till then it is useless to expiate on them." End quote. Now this skepticism is not going to be her point of view for much of the novel. So that's another kind of transformation we see. Uh, the transformation of Clara into perhaps a somewhat of a, a skeptic, someone willing to listen to the science, to someone who is you know, totally on board the, the wildness of, of what they're experiencing. So in chapter 5, Pleyel brings news that Whelan can go back to America, um, go back to Europe. And they begin to debate this. And this is kind of an interesting debate. And I, I think in some ways it connects to the American Revolution and, and, and like the, the arguments for that. I, I think we've got a little encapsulation of, of the arguments of whether Americans should have stayed in, with Britain and try to help improve Britain as part of the empire. Or should they have gone their own way and kind of, you know, stake out their city on the hill kind of model? Now, what happened? It's it's one of these preposterous things where someone finds out that they're the heir to some fortune and some European dukedom or the the, the castle or some kind of estate. And, you know, everyone else died. And the last surviving relative is in America. You know, you've, you've heard these kind of stories before. People always can hold out hope. But... I mean that's kind of kind of silly, but what's interesting is in the debate they get into, and Pleo's point of view is like you can be for the first like you can bring these American values back to Europe and be a good noble. You can do something that the British or the, that's actually I think as in mainland Europe, the, the European nobility aren't doing. They're exploiting the peasants, exploiting the people. You don't have to do that. You can you can do something, new. you can almost bring democracy back to, to Europe. And Whelan's idea is he doesn't really want to Do that. His home is in America, and that's the only place he can really hold on to his his values. And what will happen if he goes to Europe is he'll just become another tyrant. Quote, He must undergo all the perils and discomforts of the ocean. He must divest himself of all domestic pleasures. He must deprive his wife of her companion and his children of the father and the instructor. And all for what? For the ambiguous advantages which overgrown wealth and flattigious tyranny have bestowed for precarious possession in a land of turbulence and war. Advantages will not certainly be gained, and of which the acquisition, if we're sure, is necessarily distant." Now, Pleyel still tries to convince him to... to, um, go, but it doesn't really go anywhere. And now, Pleyel will be the next one to hear a voice. And the voice he hears is a voice telling him that his girlfriend Back in England, died. I forget her name. She's she's a minor character. We never actually see her on uh, like on the, on stage, but he gets news that she's dead. So this, if true, really suggests something supernatural, right? Because how can knowledge of a death in England transport instantly across the across the ocean? And that's what Playal really seems to think. He says. He quote, here was proofs of a sensible and intelligent existence, which cannot be denied. Here was information obtained and imparted by means unquestionably superhuman. That there are conscious beings besides ourself in existence whose modes of activity and information surpass our own can scarcely be denied. If there's a glimpse afforded us into a world of these superior beings, my heart was scarcely large enough to give admittance to so swelling a thought. So the first part of that is Pleyel's. Conclusion that if this really conveyed true knowledge, then there really must be a supernatural force at work And then the other is Clara's interjection. The second half is Clara's interjection that there are Spirits and so there's a possibility there. So and then we learn fully that what is being What they're learning is that Teresa. It's her name's Teresa. Teresa uh, Has died and this is confirmed later on with with a letter Oh, and there's another bit of information that Pleyel gets in addition to this news about Teresa. He also gets um, Catherine's voice, the same Catherine's voice, that says that she will not be convinced to ever go to Europe, right? So that's it's, it's a little bit of information. Now that's easily confirmed, I mean, we can just talk to Catherine if that's true or not, but that's a 50-50 chance, right? It's really, well, the amazing thing here is the announcement of the, of the death of Teresa. And the chapter ends, chapter five ends with the realization that Wieland is being increasingly affected by, by these voices and the things that are happening to them on this farm. Okay, so chapter six is a lot of fun. In, in chapter six, we finally meet Carwin and Clara, the narrator, you know, works herself up for like four pages almost talking about fate, talking about the voice, talking about all these things that have been happening. And it seems she's all trying to work herself up to a discussion about this new character, Carwin, who we know she's fearful of. Their initial encounters, though, are, are kind of odd, but pleasant. And I even get a bit of a taste that that Clara has a bit of attraction towards Carwin in, in an odd sort of way. And later on, Pleyel is going to accuse her of being involved in a you know, have essentially, having an affair with, with Carwin. Because with Teresa dead, else begins to think that maybe Catherine can be, or or Clara can be her, his, his future spouse. And then he gets, you know, that that's eventually broken up by his feelings on what, you know, that that he's really involved in a love triangle with Carwin. So um, even the description of him, um, there's nothing remarkable in these appearances. They were frequently to be met on the road and in the harvest field. I cannot tell why I gazed upon them on this occasion with any more ordinary attention unless it were that such figures were seldom seen by me except on the road or field. The lawn was only traversed by men whose views were dis- directed to the pleasures of the walk or the grandeur of the scenery. A little bit later, if his image remained for any duration in my fancy after the departure, it has become no other object occurred sufficient to expel. It was because no other object occurred sufficient to expel it. End quote. She's kind of just... Here's what I think. She's kind of justifying, you know, thinking about him. And she she said, well, there was nothing to really block him, so he just kind of dwelled on my mind. But the feeling you get is that she does have, you know, some feeling for him, at least an attraction, right? And here's the description of him. His gait was rustic and awkward. His form was ungainly and disproportionate. Shoulders broad and square... Rest in, his head drooping, his body of uniform's length, supported by long and lank legs, were the ingredients of his frame. His garb was not ill adapted to such figures. His slouch hat, tarnished by the weather, a cl- coat of thick gray cloth, cut and wrought, as is seen by county tailor, blue worsened stockings, and shoes fastened by thongs and deeply discolored by dust, which brush had never disturbed, constituted the dress. So, that's Carwin. She just sees him at this point. Um, and then that night in bed she hears a voice coming from the closet and what she hears is a conversation between two people about killing her, about murder and Clara is instantly convinced that this is real and now she's heard the voice and all three have heard the voice everyone but Catherine, Clara, Wheland and, and Plyle have heard the voice and as with the other two when you hear the voice, you believe, right? Hearing is believing in, in this story. But it's actually quite horrific to be laying in bed, just and then you hear a voice from the closet of two people plotting your own death. Um, but they don't do, you know, whatever those voices are, they don't, they don't eventually kill her, or Clara wouldn't be here to tell her story. Um, but chapter seven begins, Clara is obsessed with with the happenings of the previous night. But she hears the voice again, and she's, it's the same voice. It's the same voice she heard the previous night, the one that was plotting to kill her, and here's what the voice says. I league to murder you. I repent. Mark my bidding and be safe. Avoid this spot. The snares of death encompass it. Elsewhere danger will be distant, but this spot, shun it as you value your life. Mark me further. Profit by this warning, but divulge it not. If a syllable of what has passed escapes you, your doom is sealed. Remember your father and be faithful. End quote. So the voice seems to know about her father, which I suppose doesn't, you know, only freaks her out more. But I mean, you don't even need that. I mean, this is all creepy enough, obviously. So now how much of this is dreams or not? A lot of these, these scenes, especially with Clara's hearing of the voices, they happen in, in bed. So it's not clear how much of this is dreams and how much of this is actually waking. Right. She may have heard the one voice and then dreamed the other. Well, maybe the first one was real, but maybe she dreamed the, the, the apology, right? And the, the fact that this is, takes place now, maybe they were both dreamed, right? And I, I think that's kind of the ambiguity that's going to be in this novel to the end. We never get a satisfactory explanation of everything that happens, only some of what happens. But we have to wait uh, to, to get to that point. Well, the next day, Clara and the gang, they meet Carwin for the first time. And we learn that carwin has undergone a transformation of his own and and here charles brockton brown uses the actual language of transformation even putting them in italics to emphasize that so you know there's a good reason to think that he means carwin when talking about this transformation and essentially he transforms himself into a spanish quote his garb, aspect and deportment were wholly spanish a resident of three years in the country undefatigable attention to the language and a studious conforming to the customs of the people had made him indistinguishable from a native when he chose to assume that character. Plyall found him to be connected on the footing of friendship and respect with many eminent merchants in the city. he had embraced his Catholic religion, adopted a Spanish name instead of his own which was Carwin, and devoted himself to the literature and religion of his new country. He pursued no professions but subsisted on remittances from England. He had visited every corner of Spain and could furnish the most accurate details respecting its ancient and present state. On topics of religion, he had his own history, previous to his transformation into a Spaniard. He was unvaryingly silent. You can really gather from his discourse that he was English and that he was well acquainted with the neighboring countries. So we learn a lot about Carwin here. In fact, we kind of got this revolutionary context of the Atlantic, right? This kind of an atlantic history that's maybe not so much revolutionary but but this atlantic context of people moving around the atlantic putting on different identities perhaps uh, wearing different hats Um, playoff begins to tease clara for for falling in love with carwin and it's it's just kind of a playful teasing it's like oh he's you know you love him don't you and and it's that that playfulness is a bit ominous given the later events of the novel so chapter eight is a—it's kind of a fun chapter. They, they seem to invite Carwin into their circle and he enters qu- pretty easily. And they actually tell him, I think he can play instruments and stuff, which they like to have him there for, but they tell him about the voices. And he begins to give his own explanation for the voices. And it, it's eerily prepared kind of response to it. I mean, it's... I mean, I don't know. Like, if someone would ask me, like, this happened to me, do you have an explanation? I don't know if I have such a well developed, inarticulate answer, right, ready to go, but it seemed Carwin did. Quote, he answered that the power of mickery was very common. Catherine's voice might easily be imitated at one end of the hills, who would find no difficulty in eluding by flight the search for Wieland. The tidings of the death of the Saxon lady were uttered by the one near at hand who overheard the conversation, who conjectured her death and whose conjecture happened to accord with the truth. So he's just saying that's a coincidence. That the voice appeared to come from the circle ceiling was to be considered an illusion of the fancy. The cry for help heard in the hall the night of my adventure was to be ascribed to the human creature who actually stood in the hall when it was uttered. In. It was no moment, he said, when we could not explain what motive he, he had made the signal which led hit her. And he gives other explanations too. So he's just trying to say that there's a rational explanation for all these, or it's just chance, or you know, bad luck coincidence, whatever. That's that's Carwin's explanation for all this. Playell begins to express a bit of melancholy. He he starts to be developing this relationship for Clara and and he feels he might lose her to, to Carwin. So he's starting to feel anxious and melancholy about, about this relationship. He, of course, just lost his, his fiance, And this, he's of an age where he wants to consider marrying. Now, Clara's never going to admit she has a real attraction for, for, for Carwin. But other characters seem to think that exists. So, again, that leads me to, to doubt a little bit Clara's own reliability in this, this area. As Chapter 9 begins, Clara and Playel do begin uh, a bit of a romance. And that, that's just mentioned. But the main thing is she wants to start to explain the chaos in her life. And she wants to, to begin to understand it and, and find some balance in her life again. And the way she wants to do this is by... She gets the idea that somehow by studying her father's old books, his old manuscripts, his old like ledgers and things, which are stored in the closet... He'll be able to, she'll be able to to learn something about it. So once again, we get this idea that there's a you seek out these ancient knowledge for for some kind of truth, right? And that's kind of how the novel began. And Whelan did the same thing in his own studies. You know, Playel is someone who advocates, I think, observation, science, and reason. You know, he doesn't really need the book learning so much, but these other characters, the Whelans are seem to be obsessed with like finding textual foundations for their 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 claims. And she hears voices in the closet uh, when she goes towards the closet. And she's horrified. Quote, in my dream, he that tempted me to my destruction was my brother. Death was ambushed on my path. From what Evil was I now rescued. What minister or implement of ill will was shut up in this recess? Who was it that whose suffocating grasp I was to feel should I dare to enter it? What monstrous conception is this? My brother? End quote. And now it's really bizarre. Rather than thinking, is it the strange weirdo that we just invited into our circle that might be in the, the, the closet threatening to kill her? No, she thinks it's her brother. right? And in a, pretty soon we're going to learn that her brother is a murderer. And so does she know on some level? Is this the later Clara narrating this? And thinking, you know, he was always kind of murderous and maybe my life was a threat in that night too. Anyways, it's, it's, it's all rather bizarre that she she sees, like, and then, then like a brother in the closet, there's kind of this weird incest feel you get with it too. Like, was there the threat of incest and rape? But anyway, she opens the door and someone does come out and it's not her brother, it's Carwin. Um, and then Carwin of course he's passed to explain what he's doing there and what, you know, why he's in her closet. And Carwin admits that he was driven by a voice to not violate her. And it's it's the oddest kind of explanation you could give because it kind of says I wanted to, I had this desire to essentially rape you. And, of course, in these 18th century texts, they don't say it. But yeah, that's what he was saying. I was going to rape you, but a voice told me not to. A voice told me to stop. And I think, that's, I think Clara heard that voice stop when she was going to the closet. And then Carwin says, this voice was for me, telling me to stop my, my attempted rape of you. Here's what he says. I was impelled by a sentiment that does you honor, a sentiment that would sanctify my deed. But whatever it be, you are safe. Be this chimera still worshipped? I will do nothing to pollute it. End quote. So he's kind of promising that he'll, he'll, he won't rape her in the future. And then, um, you know, but but the key point here is he first thought that Wieland was in the closet. That, that's uh, the. Part of the bizarre aspect of this chapter, and then Carwin leaves. And in Chapter Ten, Claire is sitting there in her bedroom again, freaking out and musing on this, and and trying to make sense of all these things happening to her. But the weird thing is, Carwin is still in the house. She, she's able to look out the window, and she doesn't see Carwin leave. So he's still in the house somewhere, and she's worried that he's coming back. She's worried that he's going to do stuff, maybe to. To the other, to her brother, or the kids, or some other people, uh, but eventually she sees Carwin flee the house, and she feels an instant sense of relief for, um, you know, finally being saved and, and being preserved uh, secure. And I'm going to be quick for the next two chapters um, because they all evolve the aftermath of this event. Um, in chapter 11, Playel, you know, knocks on the door and says, "I need to talk to you, Clara." Clara comes out. And Playel then begins to berate her and yell at her and, you know, really aggressively get in her face about what he thinks. He's 100 percent convinced at this point that she had sex with with Carwin and that she he heard it. He heard the conversation between Clara and. Clara and Carwin and, you know, what was he doing in your bedroom, if not for for sex? right again the the language is 18th century right it's all about honor and and that that language but it's 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 all about sex here we get a whole page of accusations it's page 97 in the library of america if you want to to read it a whole page of accusations about sacrificing honor and converting with a murderer and a thief calls them most specious and profligate of women. I mean, it's pretty harsh things. And of course, Clara is devastated by this. She was thinking of maybe marrying Plyell. Um, Whelan later on, after Plyel leaves, Whelan tries to comfort Clara. Um, and, but Whelan knows something. Plyell had approached Whelan earlier in the night with this evidence, and they've already discussed it. So Wieland is trying to be objective here, but he's already heard the evidence, and he, he kind of knows what's up. Um, but he does agree to talk to Plyel, and we the chapter ends. Chapter eleven it is ends with a little bit of hope that that despite these accusations of the loss of virginity, that maybe Plyel can be talked down, and this uh, this relationship can be repaired. Chapter twelve describes the efforts to to you know talk to Pleyel and get him to calm down. But it's pretty clear that Pleyel cannot forgive Clara, um, and Pleyel ends the chapter by committing to leave, and he leaves the story essentially at this point. So um, he's he's gone. He's not able to to face that, and um, you know this this is why this novel I think can be interesting to to be read for for gender issues. Of course, you have the whole idea of a woman narrator being unreliable, right? It's that's a bit sexist, of course, right? That it's, it's and, and especially Clara's character. She's always emotional and, and overwrought and panicking and and anxious and uh, given to to wide speculation on, on things that happen. Um, and then added to that is is Charles Brockton Brown wants to make us not totally trust her. Like, for instance, by having these things happen when she's in bed and she'll be dreaming, right? And, oh, who but a woman would not be able to tell the difference between a dream and and reality, right? There's that, but there's also this kind of, I think, almost a feminist critique, because we know Clara's story, and we know she's being falsely accused, right? But this obsession with virginity, this obsession with purity and honor, that, of course, was a a big part of 19th century and 18th century gender relations, you know, is really destroys lives and that there's a tragedy here there's greater tragedies in the second half of the novel to be sure i'm not saying there aren't but this was a tragedy this was a relationship that could have worked should have worked but if not for a misunderstanding and then the the power of this obsession with virginity you know ruins it and it's kind of a shame Um, and i think that's where i'm going to leave it for now um my thoughts on the first the first half of wieland I will pick up with Chapter 13 and, and work through the rest of the novel, which I think it's Chapter 28 or so, but what is, it's the end. It's I can maybe find out here. Yeah, I think it's like Chapter 28, and there might be a little epilogue. Um, it's a short novel. It's only a little bit over 200 pages, So, but it's a good one. I, I do recommend it. It's a lot of fun if you haven't read it yet. So um, let me know what you think about the gender issues in the novel. What about how does this fit into the Gothic tradition? Uh, what do you think of the, just, uh, the setting, the, the events? I, I think it's such a pleasure to read because of just its, its oddity and the weird things that happen to the characters. And I also like kind of reading Clara's mind throughout it and, and its changes it goes through. Uh, or what do you think the transformation is? What is the transformation that, that Charles Brockton Brown is referring to in the title of, of the novel? So give me your thoughts. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com if you would like to, to do that. Um, but that's it for now. I'll see you next time with uh, part two and the finale of my, my thoughts on, on Wheeland. When you're strange, Faces come out of the rain When you're strange No one remembers your name When you're strange When you're strange your style.